0: In you know word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the Evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures ever. Um, forever. In, in college, um, I've mentioned this before, but I, I was an English major, uh, but I took one computer programming class, and I think about it a lot because it was... So absolutely different than anything I ever did. Uh, believe it or not, it is a very different thing to write a program to do data analysis than it is to write a paper to do poetry analysis. Very different experiences in, in my collegiate career. Uh, but when I was in that class, I had a final assignment that I was going to be graded purely on whether or not my final project worked. Uh, again, as an English major, you get to do different things. You just write a paper and if it sounds good, you can get a good enough grade. Uh, but I was going to be judged on whether or not this would actually spit out, output the right answer. We were supposed to design sort of a, a shopping cart like you might find online that I could add products to, take products away. We was supposed to calculate the, the total price, sales, tax, all of that kind of information. And I was judged purely on whether or not it would come to the right answer. Now, I worked hours on this. I worked hours and hours and hours trying to get everything right, trying to get all the logic working correctly. And once I got to the point where it worked to some degree where it actually, the computer actually let me compile the software. I didn't have any errors that would stop me from even using the software to start testing it out. Once I actually had something, well then the next, I I found a, a next big round of changes had to happen because it was working and I was adding products and subtracting products but the number was wildly off. Now, knowing my math skills, that may not surprise you, but theoretically the computer should do better math than I'm able to do. And so I was wondering, okay, if I put in this input, if I'm putting in these products, why am I not getting the right, the right answer? And This is where I had to think, okay, so what, what's going on here? And I looked back through the code and the, you know, hundreds of lines of code, and I'm thinking, where am I even supposed to start to figure out why the right answer is not coming out? one of the things I learned, and you developers in the midst probably know about this, but there was a way to sort of write these instructions, where I was able to, on a different sort of a panel, have the computer tell me exactly what answer it was getting at every step of the logical equation. So step one, this is the answer the computer has, and I'd look at that and I'd say, okay, right so far. Step two, yes, still correct. Step three, ah. That's where a problem is. And I'd look at, then I could go right to the code where step three was supposed to be happening, and I'd say, okay, the parenthesis in the wrong place. Or I I did an addition sign rather than a multiplication sign, and I'd fix that, and it was still wrong. And so I went back, and okay, step one, that's working right. Step two, that's working right. Step three, that's right now. Step four, oh, there's another error there. And I'd go, and I'd continue this process of of, of squashing these bugs, of getting rid of these glitches, until eventually all the steps worked, and I got the right answer. Now, I tell you that story because I think sometimes we wish we could do this with our hearts. You know, we sort of have these inputs come into our lives. Things happen. Someone says something. We get a certain amount of news, whether it's good news or bad news, and we react, the output, is something that we don't totally understand. This happened, why do I feel this way? This happened, why do I feel so strongly about that? we start to wonder, I wish I could just sort of peek into my heart, maybe pull back the code, and see where I'm making a wrong step in the logic of my heart. Jesus is giving us something like that, although it may not have quite all of the precision that we might like for it, but he's telling us the words we speak have this kind of a function. And we don't always like that. Because if the words coming out of our mouth really do tell us about something that's going on in our hearts, that should, in some cases, frighten us. But Jesus says there's actually a closer connection between the words that we speak, the abundance of our hearts, than we like to imagine. The big idea as we look at this passage today is this. You are what you say. You are what you say. Three parts of our passage this morning. First of all, in verse 33, sincerity. Jesus wants us to be sincere in our speech. Second, speech. Talk about why speaking is such a big deal and how it lets us to understand the, the steps of logic in our hearts. And then three, scrutiny. We will be judged for what we say. Let's start with this issue of sincerity in verse 33. Now, the context of what Jesus is saying in this passage is very important to understand. Um, in fact, some people look at uh, the passage we look at last week and this week all at once because it does kind of all hang together. Um, it's after Jesus had healed a demon-oppressed man. The Pharisees uh, um, were hearing the people ask, can this be the son of David? And so they says, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They were seeing what Jesus was doing. They were seeing that what Jesus did was good, and they were attributing the power of Jesus to the power of Satan. And what Jesus says is that's an impossible kind of a mix. You cannot do something so thoroughly good as casting out a demon by an evil power, by the power of Beelzebul. Satan does not cast out Satan, as Jesus said back in verse 26. And then further on the opposite side of this, Jesus says at the same time, Uh, You cannot look at God's good kingdom and oppose God's good kingdom because if you do, you will ultimately scatter. No evil can come out of God's good kingdom and goodness cannot come out of Satan's evil kingdom. You can't fundamentally mix the two things. Ultimately, what Jesus was saying is no one who is good in the sense that Jesus is talking about here can do ultimate evil and that no one evil can do ultimate evil. Good, And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 33 when he's contrasting who he is versus the Pharisees when he gets to verse 33 and he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree known by his fruit. So Jesus is again, he's talking about this discussion, this dispute that he's having with the Pharisees. And he's telling the Pharisees, stop trying to find evil in me, a good tree, and stop trying to claim goodness in yourselves who are, in fact, evil. You're saying, Jesus is saying, in in the case of me, Jesus is saying, if I am doing good, if I am casting out demons, that cannot come from an evil power. The simplest explanation for good fruit from my tree, Jesus is saying, is that I, the tree, myself, am good. And then for you, Pharisees, if you do evil, and remember earlier when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, Back in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. If you're doing evil by plotting my murder, then understand, stop trying to claim that you are, in fact, good. You are not good. The simplest explanation for the rotten fruit that's emerging from your life is that you yourselves are rotten to the core. Your souls are rotten. Jesus is making a very strict separation. There's good and there is evil, and the two really cannot be combined. And I think as we hear this, we start asking a lot of questions about ourselves. Well, if really there is only good and evil, if there's only these two categories, what do we do? I mean, there's evil in our lives. Where do we fit in for this? What is Jesus saying, not so much about himself and the Pharisees, maybe we can see that from the text, but what do we say about us? The point that Jesus is making is not that he requires his people to be, picked. The point that he is after is that Jesus wants sincerity. What Jesus is saying, and I'll show this from the wider context, is that everyone is going to be inconsistent, but not everyone is a hypocrite. The Pharisees are hypocrites. They claim to be good when they are, in fact, rotten to the core, when they are, in fact, evil. Jesus is saying that is a different thing than mere inconsistency. Now, now how do we see that from the wider context? How do we know that Jesus isn't demanding perfection and anything short of perfection will be ultimately condemned? But what Jesus says, uh, well, what Matthew said, rather, about Jesus, if you remember back in verse 20, of Jesus, Matthew wrote that he fulfilled the prophecy from uh, the prophet Isaiah that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus is the one who recognizes that all of us are going to be inconsistent. All of us are going to be imperfect. But what he is saying is that's fundamentally different than being a hypocrite. John Calvin has a really good line about this. He says, Christ does not demand absolute and entire perfection, but only a sincere, an unfeigned or unfaked disposition. The Pharisees, whom he addresses, were far from possessing. As Scripture applies the term bad and wicked to those who are completely given up to Satan, though the sincere worshipers of God, though they are encompassed by infirmity, weakness of their flesh, and by many sins, and grown under those burdens, they are nevertheless called good. This arises from the undeserved kindness of God, who bestows so honorable a designation on those who aim at goodness important not to miss what Jesus is saying. It is one thing Jesus is saying that the Pharisees do evil, and Jesus has much to say about the evil of the Pharisees throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels as we see Jesus interacting with them. That is one great, serious problem. The greater problem, the one that Jesus is addressing now, is that despite the fact that they are evil, they are nevertheless claiming to be good and to do good. What they are doing is they are calling their evil good. They are, in a word, hypocrites. If you know anything about our culture, our culture has a very different way of approaching hypocrisy. Our culture doesn't like hypocrisy at all. Uh, Maybe you could sort of get away with it in this culture and it was sort of assumed, uh, but our culture really recoils against the idea of hypocrisy. But the path that our culture takes to try to get around hypocrisy is by what our culture calls Authenticity. Authenticity. It's not trying to sort of cover over evil with a layer of good. It is rather the rejection of the idea that the things inside me might, in fact, evil. Well, I'm not going to just sort of hide that, suppress that, pretend that that doesn't exist in me. Rather, what the culture would argue is, in order for me to be authentic, I need to let all of that out. Carl Truman calls this expressive individualism. He calls it a public performance, an outward public performance of inward desires. Now, this is especially true in areas of human sexuality. Our culture says uh, the way to be good is not to try to change what's inside you in the area of your sexuality, uh, not to try to bring that under the lordship of Jesus. Rather, what you need to do is to stop trying to suppress that and just live that out loud, live that publicly. It's far more than that. Just in the area of human sexuality, it is also so much the case with every area of our lives Maybe you've heard the phrase uh, when someone says that you should speak your truth. I'm going to speak my truth, you speak your truth. It's the idea that what I need to do more than anything else is to bring what's inside of me out because the idea is not that I've got something bad that needs to be covered up, but rather if it's inside of me, it is necessarily good and the only wrong thing would be to press that. But ultimately... This doesn't work. This may be an attempt to try ultimately to avoid hypocrisy by authenticity, but ultimately it gets to the same place. Uh, Because as people try to let out these desires that they think are good in certain ways, or my truth as I see it, what eventually happens is that other things start to seep to the surface well. Bitterness, vindictiveness, jealousy, covetousness. All manner of unrighteousness. I'm just wanting to express this part of myself, which I think is pure and pristine. I'm speaking my truth. But out of that, eventually comes all of these other things that are welling up in my heart. And even if I call this over here good, at the end of the day, I can't really explain that. I wouldn't want to call it that good. I'm just hoping that you won't. Our culture tries to avoid hypocrisy by authenticity, but in the end we come to the exact same place. We call more things to be good than are actually good. In the end, we end up with the same kind of hypocrisy, where what seeps out is something that we cannot quite justify, even if we're trying to justify other things in our lives. Jesus doesn't call us some kind of perfection. He knows that there is evil lurking in our hearts. He doesn't want perfection from us. He does ultimately, but not right now. He wants rather sincerity. Jesus forgives inconsistency. But Jesus everywhere opposes hypocrisy. Particularly Jesus opposes hypocrisy in the area of hypocritical speech. Let we come to the second section on speech in verses 34 through 35, where Jesus is going to show why this area of speech is an area where things that we don't want to emerge from our hearts end up seeping out in various different ways. Jesus opposes the Pharisees in verse 34 by calling them, you brood of viper. And that's old King James language that's so famous it's been kept in our more modern translations. But the idea of a brood, it's a children, the offspring, you children of serpents. Jesus is getting at Old Testament language where God said in the very beginning when he put a separation between the original serpent. Satan himself who took the body of a serpent in order to deceive Adam and Eve and cursed the serpent and says that I'm going to put put enmity between the offspring of the woman and your offspring so that we see throughout history there have been these two lines. There have been God's people, the offspring of the woman, and there have been the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of Satan, those who have Satan for their spiritual father. And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are indeed some of these people. Now, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is even clearer about this. He says, you follow in the footsteps of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and so are you. What they're doing here, plotting murder against Jesus. They're lying about the source of Jesus' power. Just as Satan, the liar and a murderer, so his brood, his offspring, his spiritual children of the devil... These Pharisees are also liars and murderers. But what Jesus goes on there in verse 34, is he says, How can you speak good when you are evil? Not possible. You cannot speak well if your hearts are evil. The fruit of the words that come out of your mouth, they come from you, a rotten tree. That fruit will indeed be rotten. It's impossible for you to speak good if you are evil, is what Jesus is saying. Why? out of the abundance of the heart the mouth. The image Jesus gives is one of a reservoir. Every morning I fill up my coffee maker and I've got a reservoir filled up and I have to make sure that I don't bump it too much because if I bump it too much when the water is up to the top and I make a lot of coffee in the mornings, that water is going to come spilling out everywhere because it's going to spill out of the reservoir. When we speak, the words that come spilling out of us come from the reservoir of our heart. And Jesus is saying, not Good if you yourselves are not good. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth. Verse 35 The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. One commentator, Lenski, writes this He says, Each man stores up what he thinks is valuable, in his thoughts, and his judgments, and his convictions and the like. As occasion arises, he draws on these treasures of his. They are exactly like the man who has stored them away. What you store down in your soul becomes who you are. You know, maybe you've had something, uh, food in the past, that has too much of a particular spice. Sometimes my children, they're wanting to season their food and they dump so much salt, you can barely see the food anymore. It doesn't matter what you do, that food is now ruined. You can only taste the salt from that point on, okay? If they do that with pepper, same thing. It will be disgusting to eat. Someone, um, a family member of mine, once uh, tasted chipotle brownies, that spicy chipotle sauce, and they had a kind of a kick and she thought they were delicious, so she used the same recipe but added way too much chipotle. And we ate these, you could no longer taste the chocolate. It was just a kick in the face of nasty spice that tasted like garbage. They were inedible. The rest of the ingredients were good, but because of the chipotle in there, too much of it, it made the brownies absolute garbage. That's exactly where we went. We put them directly into the garbage. But Jesus says, your soul is like. You put garbage into your soul and that's what you become like. You put evil into your soul and that's what you become like. It's not like you have these receptacles that you can neatly put this stuff in your life over here and it won't affect who you are. Jesus says that becomes the pollution of the reservoir of your soul. When you speak, it's that pollution going to spill out your words themselves. You are what you store up in your heart, and what you store will ultimately spill out in your words. And you speak from the heart who are what you say. And it's this connection between our speech and our souls that allows Jesus to tie our speech to our ultimate judgment one way or another. We will be judged for what we say, not just the words rather because of what the words reveal about our hearts about our souls and so this is the third point scrutiny in verses 36 to 37 Jesus says I tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak by your words you will be justified by your words you will be damned and when Jesus says that we're going to give account for every careless word we speak He's not talking about, your translation may have idle word or something like that. He's not talking about silly words. If you're playing with a baby and you're making baby sounds, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about joking and laughing with your friends. The words he's talking about here are these careless words. These are something that are much closer to the idea of hypocritical words. It's a word that holds yourself out to be good, Sometimes you might hear this called virtue signaling. I'm saying this so that you think that I am, in my soul, a good person. But in fact, though I am saying this outwardly, what is really happening in my soul is very... Now again, this goes back to what I said at the very beginning. It's, It's like that software. Again, there was a shopping cart that I had built at an early stage of the draft. I did... God's grace, get the, the project to work in the end. But early on, I had a shopping cart, and it functioned. It just did not function correctly. And the judgment for that shopping cart was bound up with whether it functioned correctly, whether it worked or whether it didn't work. If it gave the right output, I would get a good grade. I would be justified in my grade. If it did not give a good output, then I would be condemned in the grade for that output same thing is true in our hearts it wasn't that my professor was concerned so much about the output it wasn't like he was having me build this so that he could go shopping and needed to know how much he could spend he could pull out a calculator if need be what he was trying to figure out was was my programming correct this is what Jesus is saying these words reflect whether our hearts are correct whether our hearts are in a right condition not so much that we will be condemned or justified by the sounds that we utter, by what those sounds reveal about the condition of our hearts. Now, some Bible scholars use this helpfully, I think, to explain what we mean by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the, in the previous passage, a blasphemy that cannot be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. It is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. The point is not that there is some magical curse word or phrase or incantation that if you say those words in the right order, that you will be bound to hell and destruction forever. Not so much the words that you say, it is where would those words come from? It would come from a heart, a soul, that is set in settled, decided, stubborn opposition against the Spirit of God, against the kingdom of God, against the purposes of God in the world. If you set yourself against God, Jesus says, you will scatter. Which is why this can be expressed as a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not so much what you say. It is rather that what you say comes from your heart. Regarding the other side of this, the justification, by your words you will be justified, something that Paul makes a little bit clearer in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, the point is not that you have to utter the the magical incantation in the right way in order to be saved. Say these words in this order and you will be saved. The point that both Jesus here in our passage and Paul in Romans chapter 10 is making, that there is the tightest integration between what spills out of our mouths and what is contained in the reservoir of our heart. How do we then apply these words, these warnings of Jesus? One of the difficult applications of this particular text, and I've been meditating a lot on this week, listen to what your words are saying about your heart. Listen to what your words are saying about your heart. Have you ever noticed how much time, energy, and effort we spend trying to dissociate ourselves from our words? Sometimes this happens at a really big formal level. People enter into contracts And they say, they get into difficult disagreements about what the contract means. They say, well, I know the contract says this, but I didn't mean that. Sometimes we do this on a formal, informal level. I know I said that, but I didn't mean it. I was only joking. I wasn't really saying that. We try to deceive ourselves that the ugly things we say don't mean anything. Don't reveal anything. They haven't actually opened a window in our soul to see the errors of our heart. But what if your words really did tell the world around you, and especially God who is listening to every word we speak, exactly who you are? Can I cannot hide your evil heart anymore than I could hide my bad programming skills when I was in college. Jesus is saying that you are, in fact, what you say. You can't separate that out. But what are your words saying about what you are? What do your words reflect about your true priority? What do your words reflect about your contempt for other people? What do your words say about your fears? What do your words say about your unbelief in the promises of the gospel? What do your words reflect about your love or your lack of love? What do your words say that you are? If you listen to your words for very long, you're not going to like from you you should know what's coming out of the depths of your soul but the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can know it we only know it by the words that come tumbling out of our mouth oh that's apparently down we do about our sinful words the first thing that jesus is calling us to here and he's calling the pharisees to this but they are stubborn in their hearts they are in decided, settled opposition against the Holy Spirit. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, not merely by the words they have spoken, saying that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, but by the hearts that could conceive of such a wicked thought. They won't repent from this, but we should. Repent from your words, and that is not repent so much from the sounds that you utter, repent from what in your heart. Those words have come from. As we talked about in the past, repentance is a change of mind, what the word means, stemming from a change of heart. that overflows into a change of life. This includes your words. It means to change your mind about the significance of your words, to really recognize that these reveal who you are. It's to change your heart by learning to hate the sin that is revealed from the words that you speak. And it's Confess these things to God. Ask Him to forgive us and to ask Him to make us new, not so that we can better manage our speech so that people won't be on how evil our hearts are. We're asking God to create in us a new heart, a new heart that will result in new words. First of all, repent from your words. Second of all, confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not about magic words. This isn't a, a protection, incantation, or charm that you can speak over your life, or maybe you can print out and put on the door of your house to ward off evil spirits. This is not superstition. This is life or death, eternity in hell or heaven forever. The call to confess new principle from your heart Part of this means that we need to cultivate words that deepen our love for Christ. You know, again, we will speak out of the abundance of our hearts, the reservoirs of our soul. Just as we can tuck away bitterness and lust and resentment and fear, so we can tuck away God's word in our hearts. Scripture urges us to meditate on God's word. It's an image of a cow chewing its cud. That should be what we're constantly. Constant, constantly, chewing, meditating upon over and over and over. Why? So we are not ingesting into our souls wickedness of the world, but the world. Meditate on the Word. Memorize Scripture. Let God's Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, using His Word, change what is in your heart so that your heart will begin to speak new words. We will sing a new song. I've printed off a resource um, in the parlor. There's some copies out there, at least there were. Um, it's an article I've written on wisdom for the tongue and Old Testament theology of the tongue. There are a number of scripture references. The Old Testament has so much to say about the tongue and how to tame the tongue. If this is an issue for you, I would urge you to get a hold of this article and to look up a lot of the scripture references and to pray over what you are reading there. But at the end of the day, it's important to recognize that what Jesus is talking about here isn't a system that we can employ to fix ourselves. You cannot pull up the source code of your heart and begin to affect it, to change it, by just typing into the few things into the prompt. Furthermore, and I can't do that. Your pastor, I can't do it to myself, much less to you. What it requires is nothing less. The work of the great physician giving you a transplant of a heart, taking out your stony, rock-hard, cold, dead heart that thus far fills up your soul, that spews out vile and vindictive and evil words, to replace it with a soft heart flesh, Responds to the Lord in faith and begins to speak words that reflect a loving, trusting heart in the Lord and loving heart toward other people. Pharisees were unwilling to do this. They were unwilling to look to Jesus to change them. In fact, that's specifically what they were rejecting. They were rejecting Jesus as God's judgment to do this at all. What about you? What will you do? You listen to the words that come out of your mouth as you recognize that word tells you, those words tell you about what is in your soul. What will you do with Jesus? He promises you in the gospel to transform you from the right. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus. You would give us grace in Jesus to love you, to serve you, to follow you all the days of our lives. Father, we repent of the wicked words that arise from we pray that you would turn us away from that. And contrition and sorrow and repentance. Have a changed mind stemming from a change. Overflows into a change of life. Turn to Jesus. Him to remake us from the outside, the inside out. All this we pray in Christ's name.